Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms. So the topic of our conversation today is the emerging paradigm of biofuel science. So what is biofuel science? The biofuel science is also known as energy medicine or energy healing and includes things like the impact of electromagnetic currents such as the Earth's magnetic field or electric currents on our healing capacity, but it also includes modalities such as Reiki, healing touch, pranic healing, and many others. And most of these come from the ancient wisdom traditions of the East. The biofield science perhaps would also include the placebo effect or the impact of our own intention and expectation on not just our healing, but the healing of those around us. So it is quite an empowering idea that we have tremendous healing potential to heal ourselves through the mind-body connection, but also we have tremendous potential to heal our communities and those around us in such a needed time. For the longest time, the biofuel was considered woo-woo and it had no place in the Western medical establishment. But now it seems like we're having a paradigm shift. These modalities are becoming available in hospitals and institutions in the form of integrative medicine across the Western hemisphere. This for me is a personal episode as well because as I prepared for this episode, it reminded me of my own healing journey where I thoroughly became disillusioned with Western medicine. Not because that it doesn't work, but because it rejected any role of energy medicine or of our own consciousness and capacity to heal ourselves. So for this conversation, I have the pleasure of having with me today, Dr. Shamini Jain, who is a pioneer in the field of biofield science. She's an Ivy League trained clinical psychologist and a researcher in the area of psychoneuroimmunology. More than that, I consider Shamini a real maverick in the field of biofield science because in her career, she made several bold moves to stay true to her passion to exploring energy medicine, to discover for herself that it works and not just stop there, but bring it out into the world and facilitate a paradigm shift. As I was preparing for this interview, I had the pleasure of reading Shamini's latest book, Healing Ourselves. This is an incredible book. I actually ended up reading it twice and I couldn't recommend it more. The book has three parts. The first part has the history of how the rift in Western science happened, where the role of consciousness and the connection between the mind and body was completely rejected. And then the second part has tons of research for the skeptics out there to show how energy medicine works from ailments, from depression, ranging all the way to surgery. And the last part, perhaps the most important part in our times, is titled The Healing Keys, which talks about the various ways in which we can apply energy medicine to heal ourselves, our communities, and to flourish. So this was a shorter conversation only an hour, but it is packed with tons of wisdom. I hope that you get to enjoy it. And as always, please remember to like and subscribe. That really helps me with continuing to do the work that I'm doing. And now let's turn to the conversation. Thank you, Shamini, for being with me today. Oh, thank you, Kenan. It's, it's so wonderful to be with you here. Excellent, excellent. So I've been, I've been looking forward to this conversation, especially after reading your book, which we'll add in the show notes. And recommend to the listeners to check it out. So maybe we can, we can begin, begin at the start to, to see how this field is, is defined in terms of, you know, it's, it's potential to revolutionize. Yeah. I mean, as you know, Kenan, I have been sort of in this field of what we've been calling in the Western science world, biofield science and healing for a couple of decades now. And as I'm sort of witnessing what is happening in our culture, kind of what is happening around the world, it, it, I don't think it's any surprise to you and probably our listeners here that we have, you know, massive um, spiritual sickness <laughs> that is happening here on some degree. And we're seeing that manifested in mental health crises, chronic health crises, fear, anxiety, often panic, for example, around our health. Now, I tend to view things from that health lens because that's my training as a clinical psychologist, researcher in psychoneuroimmunology. As I've been traversing the scientific field, it's, I've become, of course, more and more aware of the data kind of being on the inside, if you will, of the scientific inquiry into healing, that our power is quite tremendous. It's remarkable, actually, in terms of being able to facilitate our well-being but our health and healing down to the physical level, and of course, also on the societal level. So this has left me sort of puzzled, well, what is it that we're sort of missing in the general community about our knowledge about healing? Why is it that most of us, you know, maybe some of us on the inside 
are learning about these discoveries, but mostly it hasn't been translated out into the public. Why is that? And we can talk about that more at length, but that missing link that I have been so excited about exploring personally as a scientist, but also facilitating the knowledge and the exploration of is this area called the biofield. Because, and let me define really quickly what biofield is for people that may have not heard that term. First of all, it was a term that was coined in the 90s by a group of scientists at the National Institutes of Health to try to understand things, including what we call energy healing, healing touch, Reiki, and things like that, but also the effects of bioelectromagnetics on the body. That includes devices and just things that we know already, you know, that we can measure that tell us about our state of health. So the term biofield was coined in the 90s to describe fields interacting and penetrating fields of energy and information that can guide the homeodynamic functioning of a living organism. In plain English, essentially, from my lens, it's fields of energy and information that can connect us and that guide our health. That's what the research is saying. So we can explore these fields of energy and information on the cellular level. And there are people doing that, you know, really making great strides on the impact of, for example, looking at the communication between cells across cell membranes and how we might be able to work with that cellular communication, the bioelectric code, if you will, to regenerate nerve tissue. That's an example of biofield science that's really exciting and tremendous and groundbreaking. And then there are those aspects that are also equally as groundbreaking and to some people, quite frankly, mind-boggling that have to do with consciousness. And that's where we're exploring things like biofield healing, things like Reiki, things like healing touch, laying on of hands, pranic healing, ancient and modern traditions that are showing us that simply by coming into a more expanded conscious state and connecting with someone through that expanded conscious state, we can facilitate healing not only in ourselves, but also for others. So I've, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time exploring this scientifically on my side and also being keenly aware of some of the wonderful work being conducted by numerous scientists in the field. And when I look at the biofield, I think you know, in relevance to your show, Potential Paradigms, when we learn about the biofield, it actually helps us to expand our paradigm and create what people often call that paradigm shift, that we are not just these isolated, disconnected physical beings in bio body suits, as William Tiller has once said, right? We're more than that. The biofield shows us that we actually connect with each other that our consciousness expands beyond our body and that our conscious state can not only facilitate healing for ourselves, but for others. And all the data that we're coming into contact with, and there's more data that we need to kind of explore in this field, is really pointing to the reality of that. And again, brings us back to the ancient wisdom traditions that have been saying this all along. So I'll stop there, you know, kind of an exploration of of the biofield in particular and why I have been circling around it for decades because I do feel that this is still the best kept secret in science and medicine, that it's tremendous because it really leads us back to the power of our consciousness to heal ourselves and others and know how deeply interconnected we really are. Yes, thank you. Yeah, when I when I was reading your book, it um it, it it was so beautiful to see how you you had built the case for the biofield, you know, starting from um, from the case of actually these spontaneous remissions that you became very curious about early on. I believe in in your career, and that sparked the interest to kind of connect it with ancient ancient traditions. And one of the things that you highlighted was that we have a health paradigm where it is not so much about staying healthy or discovering the potential of healing ourselves but it is uh it is a materialistic paradigm and it's a paradigm primarily driven by by illness and and symptomatology so um i was i I was curious what how do you see that do you think that is shifting now is that already happening 
In integrative health, and I would say aligned with that behavioral health, public health, there is a big push now to what we call whole person health. Not even whole person medicine, but whole person health. Again, why? Because the data is leading us there. As I mentioned, my home field is psychoneuroimmunology, another big fancy term. But what does it mean? Okay, let's break down the word. Psyche actually means spirit. The origin of the word psyche is spirit. But most people consider it psychology and they will think about the mind and emotion, right? So however you want to define psyche, in truth, psyche is defined by spirit. That's how it's the origin of the word, as I said. Neuro, straightforward, right? The brain and central nervous system. Immunology, the immune system. We also have a companion field called psychoneuroendocrinology, and you can imagine what that is. What does it mean? Essentially, this field began about 50 or 60 years ago because people were noticing patterns in people's emotional regulation, in the way that they express themselves out in the world, in their emotional state and their state of health. And that really brought us to a whole field of study that has really helped us articulate the mind-body connection. And then that expanded to help us understand how our environment, including whether we come from neighborhoods and communities where there is tremendous violence or financial need or an underprivileged community or whether we come from a privileged community, those have a bearing on our health as well. Through the field of psychoneuroimmunology, we have come to learn through the scientific data that our connection matters with others. And it's not so much just the quantity of connection, but the quality. We have learned that our environment can actually trigger the epigenetic signaling in our body. And that's very real, that trauma can trigger the epigenetic signaling of the body. These are all environmental factors, if we want to say it, how we process and feel the environment. So we've learned a bit about that, but we've, of course, we've learned about diet. We've learned about mind-body practices and spiritual practices and how those can also alter the epigenetic signaling of the body. In short, we're learning that it's our spirit, it's our mind, it's our emotion, it's our environment, it's our health behaviors. All of these aspects play a tremendous role on our both individual and societal health. Now, that might seem a no-brainer, right, to some of us, but it's really only 50 or so years ago that science has devoted their attention to actually studying and exploring these factors down to the cellular level. So because of that, we're moving from that sickness model to a whole person health model, to an understanding that everything that I do and experience can have a profound impact on my health, potentially even the health of my future generations, right? Through long-term programming of epigenetic signaling. Now, there's a lot of work that we still need to do in there, but we certainly know that trauma, for example, can affect the epigenetic signaling across generations. What we will hopefully be devoting our attention to more as we study whole person health is what happens to my future generations as I clear the traumatic patterns in my mind, body, and energy field. What happens when I alter the expression of epigenetics in my body by shifting my diet from the generations, you know, of diet? And so, you know, on the personal cannot, I know you and I are both of, you know, East Indian origin. And so cardiovascular disease, diabetes runs, you know, in, in the lineage of our heritage, really. Often people of our origin have that. So one of the questions is, well, why? You know, is that really a physical genetic thing, or does it have to do with the constant, you know, kinds of foods that we have been eating over the generations and what happens when we alter those foods? So we're real comfortable with that when we talk about potentially altering our diet that's physical and that feels real, right? But in the same way that we look at how diet might influence the epigenetic signaling in the body and our health outcomes, we could also begin to examine trauma patterns, right? in our field, the traumas that we've been carrying. Many of us are coming from generations where our ancestors were traumatized. And we may be carrying that, whether we want to talk about it on a spiritual level, a karmic level, an energetic level, or a DNA level, a physiological level. We can look at those layers of ourselves as part of our, of our functioning and know that we can help to interrupt that trauma pattern 
and that cycle. And where, how do we begin? All with consciousness, right? All with consciousness. Beautiful. Thank you. One of the things that you, you mentioned and you actually talk about this book is that this shift of the paradigm that, that you, you were a pioneer in and this, you know, this battle in, in this materialistic paradigm of academia and industry and the wider culture we live in, that a lot of these um, healings that are connected with consciousness are not new. They're present in pretty much all indigenous traditions have deep, deep knowledge of you know, the connection between consciousness and healing. But then also you have a particular case, you have several examples. That's why I, one of the things I loved about your book is it actually uh, describes the history um, of health and healing in general from the 16th century and before. And one example that you had was this gentleman, I believe his name was Mesmer, who was kind of um, a healer, an energy healer. And known as the father of hypnosis, as, as you mentioned him. And uh, so you, you were talking, so he, he, and then you mentioned that he was considered a charlatan at some point because of this divide that happened at the time of Descartes and Newton of the mind-body separation that, you know, healing had to be physical and the mind and body were, were disconnected. So it even seemed that even in the West, there, there was... Um, you know, the West was not entirely oblivious till that point to the connection between consciousness and healing. There were some signals there. And after that, we, we seem to have had this stint of uh, materialism and mind-body separation for nearly uh, 400 years. Uh, I, I, I wonder if you, I'm, I'm sure you have some, some thoughts on that because you, you talk about this very beautifully in your book. You know, Kenan, it's a beautiful inquiry because let's let's just take a step back for a moment and think about what does it mean, you know, potential paradigms, this podcast to to facilitate a paradigm shift. What has happened for us as a, a humanity most of the time is that we continue to engage in polarization of thinking. Now, I mean, we can go really deep with this to the ancient traditions that say consciousness and its um, in its purest form, you can say, is oneness and there is no form. And from those traditions, we understand that when consciousness comes into form, what we perceive as a duality also comes into form. Now, indeed, what it actually happens is it's a complementarity, right? So we see that complementarity, descri complementarity described in different ways, masculine and feminine, for example. And I always, when I talk about this, I remind people we're not talking about male and female per se. But these are, you know, words that we have put upon certain attributes, we can say, for example, of consciousness or nature that exist. So there is something about complementarity in the way that we process information as human beings that we just do. And so because of that, though, what happens is we fall into this dualistic thinking. And I think relevant to science and medicine, here's what has happened. We have engaged in very polarized thinking about what health and healing is. And there were reasons for this, okay? We, we saw a focus on pathogenic thinking. That is the idea that disease is outside of me. It's caused by something like a germ. And I'm going to take some medicine, probably physical, that is outside of me to kill this germ that is an invader. It's outside of me. Well, at the time, that paradigm and that way of thinking was very useful because we people were sick. They were dying. We couldn't figure out how to make them better. Clearing the bad spirits didn't make it go away, right? If it did, maybe antibiotics wouldn't have been invented. But they were, and they saved many lives. But then we continued on this very specific pathway toward viewing health as the absence of disease. Viewing disease as an invader, an outsider, something that isn't really part of us that we need to get rid of. And so we see a real strong focus of that in our medicine even today, modern, so-called modern medicine. So we kind of forgot, dismissed the ancient traditions that really approached health and healing from holism, understanding that healing was a return to harmony a harmony within ourselves, but also a harmony with our environment. And now we see in modern times in the integrative health field, a return to what is called whole person health. Now, whole person health is essentially just a modern reframing 
of the indigenous wisdom that has always been here, that has expressed and helped us understand that healing is not just about getting rid of an invader. It's sure about detoxifying the body, getting rid of toxins. That's part of it, right? Clearing the body of ama or toxins as we talk about in Ayurveda, but that's just part of it. Ultimately, healing is the restoration of harmony. And if we were able to hold both of these possibilities in science and medicine, then I think we will really be able to achieve these aims that everyone is looking for. How do we prevent disease? How do we prevent suffering? How do we foster a more harmonious and flourishing life for all? If we can hold these and not see them as opposites, that indigenous medicine is not necessarily opposite to modern medicine, that a view of healing as harmony is really not necessarily opposite to exploring whether there is a pathogen that needs to be dealt with, right? Both of these things could be true. But we see, for example, in the COVID crisis, boy, what a paralyzing, polarizing time that was for all of us, right? So as humans, I think, as we begin to embrace the multiple perspectives, including on health and healing, We'll be able to see things that we're seeing right now, for example, with energy healing or biofield healing, actually being able to facilitate a reduction in tumor spread in mouse models of cancer. And as I talk about this in my book, why is this so unbelievable? I've talked about it in my TEDx talk. It's real data. It's published. It's being published by the best of scientists in the best of organizations. These are very real data. We're showing on the cellular level in mouse models of cancer that our consciousness, in this case by an adept healer, can actually influence the physiology so that tumors don't spread in the body. And in some cases, tumors actually shrink down to inflammatory cytokine signaling, changes in cell subsets, protein kinase signaling, all the things that we would look at when we look at drugs. We're seeing this with energy healing. How is it possible? And as you know, the mainstream scientific community has a really hard time believing this. Why? Because we've just been over-focused on a very narrow view of what healing is. And it doesn't mean we have to throw everything out that we know, potentially, but we do need to expand the understanding. We need to place consciousness back into the picture of how we heal and not just Think of it as an epiphenomenon of the brain. That's my personal opinion on it. And I know that's shared by many in my space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everything that you're saying is, is so fascinating. And um, that's why I was telling you before the, the podcast that I actually ended up reading the book, book twice because I was like, you know, uh, there's just so much packed in there. And one of the things that I loved about your book is the whole section. You divided the book into three parts and part two is all about the evidence that even if the biofield is not cannot be pinned down as some kind of one polar aspect that this is what it is there's so much evidence and you talk about not just uh depression and and you know more of the soft stuff like psychology but actually surgery and then uh you know going down to to things like parkinsons where it, at, even at the level of the neuron there are measured results so it, clearly it works and i think that I think one of the cases you make is that we know that it works. So why should we not incorporate it? Why is that that evidence, not evidence enough to bring this shift? So I just wanted to highlight that, that you made this excellent case by providing tons of evidence in the book. And talking about another aspect that you were just highlighting, this polarity uh, that we we have so much right now. Um even in the case that you were talking about germ theory and epigenetics, this is an example that keeps coming back to me that even in the times when these theories were being proposed, um, like in case of epigenetics, we had Darwin and Lamarck who were contemporaries. So Darwin was for evolution and Lamarck was actually kind of pointing to something like epigenetics that your ancestors do in fact impact the coming generations. But that was totally, you know, very political, yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, same thing with the with the germ theory. I don't know exactly who it was, but I think in the time when the germ theory was proposed and it took off, there was also an opposite view 
that if you have like sort of a colony of bacteria that can balance out the good and the bad, you will be okay. But that, I think there is a very good example. I forget the name of the scientist, but um, that was dismissed as well. So I was trying to connect why that is. And what jumped on to me was, was materialism, that we completely bought into this paradigm that there has to be uh, only materialistic theories are That's the right. ones that will survive. So consciousness has no room. Um, anyways, do, do you have any, any comments? Do you see? So it seems like it happened in the past and it continues to happen. That we have evidence for things, but we won't consider them because they have to fit a materialistic purpose. That's right. And we understand the influences that are sort of corporate influences that continue to perpetuate that more narrow-minded view of soul materialism as the basis of human existence and the basis of healing. But again, <laughs> the data is very clear. And you, whether you're looking at energy healing or you're just looking at emotion, okay, you can't explain everything from a pure materialist viewpoint. It just doesn't fit all of the data. Does that mean that there aren't materialist explanations for some of the healing phenomena? No, that means that you could adopt a materialist explanation. But if you were adopting a materialist explanation and then you have data like the energy healing, biofield healing data that is showing that a person's consciousness only without touching an animal, but simply directing consciousness at that animal in a certain way is influencing the physiology, then you have to entertain other aspects. Now, this is very important, Kenan, and we're going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here because I know you wanted to talk about mechanism. This relates to what is going on now with the scientific inquiry, for example, around energy healing practices. Because we know that the National Institutes of Health and other major organizations have, you know, historically not funded this work in biofield healing because they said you've got to show a mechanism a biologically plausible mechanism. What do we mean by mechanism? Mechanism, first of all, in, implies that there's one. And everything we're learning about the body is that there's no such thing. Even cytokines, those immune transmitters that run around our body and instruct cells to do different types of things, they can be, quote, anti-inflammatory or inflammatory depending on the environment of the cell from which they come from. Everything in the body is what we call pleiotropic. That is that there are multiple pathways and multiple ways that even a single molecule can affect the body. So for us to think that there is one singular mechanism, for example, whether we're talking about placebo, where we know there's no one singular mechanism, or energy healing doesn't make sense. But my colleagues now are trying to publish these really incredible findings that they're finding in these mouse models of cancer with energy healers in very mainstream, high elevated journals, which is where we want that data to be published because it truly is groundbreaking. And the response from those editors are like, you need to show that you can block the effect. So we want you to do these gene knockout studies of mice to see if you block out that particular pathway where you're seeing the effects, then, you know, then we know it's quote real. Or we want you to block the EMFs or electromagnetic frequencies, we want you to use an electromagnetic frequency blocker to see if you do that, will you block it? Because they're still so stuck in this idea that it's physical, right? That if they, what's so fascinating to me as a scientist is if they show that, then they're somehow satisfied. But I'm very curious about it. And I actually talked with one of the scientists here. And I said, do you think that every, given everything that we've learned so far, in psychoneuroimmunology, and in placebo, and even in biofield science, that if you block one physiological pathway, there's one road, basically, that's going to drive effects like reductions in tumor spread or metastasis. Do you think that if you block that one pathway by doing a gene knockout study, that you're not going to necessarily see the effect happen through a different pathway? Because when you explore things from a biofield science perspective, you understand that this isn't just energy we're talking about, it's information. The energy itself has an intelligence. I talk about that in the book. We're seeing that in the data. For example, several studies now conducted at Harvard, at University of Connecticut and other places where energy healers have opposite effects on healthy cells versus cancerous cells. 
That's mind-blowing. How does that happen? These are cells that are in a dish. The energy healer is basically directing energy without touching the dish, and they're comparing this to mock healers. And what they're finding is that those cells in a dish, if they're healthy, will proliferate or grow. But if those cells are cancerous, they decrease in number. How does that happen? There has to be some information that is carried in the energy. It's not just energy itself. So we see this constant focus on a materialist singular explanation for healing, even with these mind-blowing studies, which to me is very narrow in its view. And quite frankly, Kenan, from my point of view as a clinical psychologist, I am more interested now in not trying to prove that energy healing works or even prove the molecular pathway. I mean, I think it's great. A lot of my fellow scientists are doing that work. It's important work. We need that work to have the mainstream conversation because clearly that's where people are at. That's where their consciousness is. But for me as a pragmatist and a clinical psychologist, what I want to know is how helpful and useful can these practices be for people that are suffering? And is there any value add to people learning about the biofield, being able to work with it on their own, even for their own healing? And that's why the third part of my book, The Healing Keys, is really, honestly, these days, part of my favorite part. It's very easy to read. You know, of course, being a data nerd, I throw some data in there, too, a little bit. But it's more focused on practice, because ultimately what the data is leading us to understand is that my energy matters. So then the question is, okay, how do I work with my energy on a day-to-day basis to foster flourishing for myself and for others? And I think what's beautiful about this is we can learn from the healing fields, the spiritual healing fields, the contemplative fields, to understand how to access the feeling and the flow of energy in our body, how it relates to our emotional state, how it relates to being grounded in our body and even connected with the earth to foster vitality, to foster emotional wellness, to ignite our creativity so that we can create the new realities for ourselves and others, right? So the healing keys, I think, is, um, is important because it brings this really down to a practical level. Because in the end, we're not just about fighting for a new paradigm. Why are we doing it? We're doing it to foster flourishing for ourselves and others. Let's, let's take hold of this data for sure, explore these missing links, but then let's put it into practice. Knowledge brings power. Practice brings wisdom. And that's what we need right now. We need to become a more wise society. Yeah, so fascinating. And, and I totally agree. I think that I, I love that part three of your book of the healing keys. Um, actually, and I, that was the part I was most hungry about because I, I was like, okay, what can I take and apply? Which as you're saying is what the key is. Um, but c- kind of connect, connecting back, this is so fascinating um, about, let's talk a little bit about the, the placebo. Because I think it connects to one aspect that you highlight in your book. One was, one thing that you're you're demonstrating is that there is tons of evidence that energy healing, the biofield healing works, right? And then the second is that you're you're showing that actually it is empowering to us to, to it demonstrates that we have tremendous potential to heal each other and heal ourselves, right? And we keep on selecting something uh, or dismissing something that that works and is empowering to something that would actually disempower us. Because the moment I say that there's an external agency that can heal me and I have zero capacity to heal myself or heal people who are connected to me and I love, that that is fundamentally disempowering. So we're, we're as as a civilization, we have made this choice against evidence and against something that we love, which is empowerment, right? Uh, It's kind of a riddle. And I think you, you, I, it really stuck with me when you used that. It was a few lines, but it stuck with me that we're we're dismissing evidence and empowerment. Yeah. Um, so I I think what you're highlighting in the healing keys is that empowerment is like that's the most important piece. 
And, and let's think about this. Why would we dismiss the evidence and, you know, the potential for empowerment? Well, it's scary, right? It, it sort of shifts our world. And there's a personal shift, as you know, Kanan, as a spiritual practitioner, that you have to make. I mean, as you know, one of the healing keys is surrender, which is a big one for people. When I teach about this, it's the one that some people really struggle with. In order to shift our worldview, we have to let go. We have to let go of what we thought we knew. We have to, you know, expand and be humble, right? We have to recognize that we don't know everything. We have to be curious. Um, but we don't have to be afraid. And I think what happens is fear gets in the way sometimes when we are exploring this, whether on a, you know, kind of more global paradigmatic level or even on a personal level. It's natural to feel afraid if we think, oh, my God, now I have to change my life. I have to change the whole way I think about everything. Right. But I think what we're learning with the healing keys is that this can actually be a joyful process <laughs> because when we start tapping into the energy within us, and around us, and we start connecting to it, we ultimately are led back into the nature of our spiritual core, which is by its essence, joyful. So we don't have to be afraid of expanding ourselves in this way. It can truly be a joyful process, but we do have to open the door. And the best way to open the door is through the experience. It's it's just the fundamental way that things shift. Things will not shift unless we are open to shifting our experience. Yeah, no, that's so beautiful. It, it was reminding me, you know, in, in my own journey, and I think this is pretty much of the journey of awareness, that you become more responsible, responsible about your own health and the environment, uh, because you are the only agency in a way. And I think that th this is a fear as you're highlighting. We have this fear. Oh, there is no one else who's going to take care of stuff. We have to take care of stuff. And yeah, but it's the we. I love what you just said because it's the we. It's not just the me. I mean, as we expand to the biofield, we start learning that we're never alone, that there is always support, you know, that yes, we do have to take our own ownership and responsibility of being part of the co-creative force that is all around us and within us. But it is a we. And, and by taking responsibility, we begin to tap into the larger we. And I think that's what's beautiful. So, yeah, that means that we may have to make some adjustments to the way we live in order to be more in the flow of the we and be in the flow of the larger creative force that surrounds us. And, and that's a really beautiful thing. So I think when we learn to surrender and embrace that, and, and that includes embracing our suffering so that we can transform our suffering. This is a big one. Most of us don't like feeling uncomfortable, right? But it's discomfort that brings about growth. And so how do I approach my discomfort in a way that I can hold it? And, and I'm actually speaking here, not just emotionally, but energetically. This is part of the beauty of working with the biofield. As we begin to work with the biofield, we can not only simply witness our suffering, not just as a passive observer, but almost as a mother. You know, you're literally holding that in tenderness and, and learning how to expand to hold the suffering in a tenderness so that it can share the information that it wants to share and transform. And I think that's part of the beauty that I have found personally in working with the field, whether I have done it with others, you know, with clients, or in a, you know, in a room when I'm teaching, right? Um, it's tremendous how when we tap into that field, we can hold space for the suffering of others, but also for ourselves. You know, it's, uh, it's very, very helpful to help us get through those times that we all have of grief, of doubt, um, of not feeling well, you know, whether it's physically, mentally, spiritually. Yes, totally. Yeah, and uh, that that reminds me of an kind of an anecdote that you shared in your book, which was uh, when early on on your path um, towards biofield healing, when you wanted to understand that you encountered um, a, a Jain nun from like the Indian tradition, an, an elder, and uh, you wanted to learn about healing, and she said to you, "You need to heal yourself first. Mm -hmm. 
or you can yeah. learn what you're doing. I, I found that uh, so beautiful. And it, you know, it, it kind of turned this light on in my mind because this is something I've been thinking about that in every kind of paradigm that's shifting right now, uh, the, the predominant paradigm that we have is of materialism. And it's actually the reason why we all have made the case for materialism and other people continue to do that is because, because we're wounded. We haven't healed ourselves, right? And uh, I think that's where it needs to begin is to, is to heal ourselves. But, but you listen to it. I don't know how many people are open to that. Yeah, it's a, it's, and thank you for bringing that up because I was really coming to her again with a deep curiosity, but really a focus on, I want to understand the mechanics of this, right? So really coming as I was trained, you know, as a, you know, Ivy League neuroscience major at that time, uh, you know, focused on sort of the mechanics, what we were talking about. This is how I was trained. Let's use the mind as the tool to kind of figure it all out. And I'm going to be the passive observer, you know, the, the employing this third person methodology. I'm out here. Healing is over here. And I'm going to look into it and I'm going to deduce it. And I'm going to figure out all the mechanisms and how it works and what are the layers of the subtle body and how karma fits in and all that, you know. And it's it's nice to kind of have those maps and understand it. But what she was encouraging me to do was to go into that experience, to understand what healing meant for me, to go through the process, first person, through my own experience, to explore it so that I could really understand it. And that's a lifelong journey, right, to me. Because as you, as you know in my book, I say, to me, the path of healing, which is a process, not an outcome, is really one and the same as the process of what we often call spiritual liberation, right? It is a full coming into contact on a continued basis with the soul's light. That's how I see the process of healing, that if I have forgotten myself, if I have forgotten my true nature, if I have been caught up in the daily of life or my own pain and suffering, or even the pain and suffering of others. Can I engage and continue to re-engage in this ever-evolving process of healing to remember, right? To really remember, remember who I am and remember who everyone else is. To me, that's really, that's what the process of healing is all about. And, and personally, and, and also what I have witnessed both from the data and just witnessing others who engage on this path, it is a joyful path. It's not a bypass. It's not like we're ignoring the suffering or saying, oh, I'm just going to, you know, come into a state of bliss and, you know, continue to do my work and, and, you know, just sort of focus only in myself. But it is important for us, I think, now as we move toward, as you said, what, what did you say at the start of our interview, a, an apocalyptic culture or something right so that that's those are pretty powerful words i was really struck by that right if we indeed are really moving through that kind of kali yuga how do we move through this time period in a way that we can continue to capture the essence and the joy and the light of who we are so that we can use this time for transformation, because truly, you know, as you know, Kalima is all about transformation. This is all about transformation. Absolutely spot on. Like you just said, you know, um, that, that Kali, Kali Yuga is described or Kalima is the, um, is the revelation. And actually that is the etymology of apocalypse as well that I didn't know at one point. The word apocalypse actually is connected with Christian mysticism and means revelation of truth. Yeah. Um, one one of the things, actually, what you were just saying re reminds me of what you highlight in your book, the difference between cure and healing. Yeah. And uh, from my own journey of, you know, having a health crisis and going to the, to the Western medicine where I was also, you know, embedded in the academic circle, um, you know, oftentimes I would go to a doctor and I would feel like he saw my eye or my kidney, but I felt like I wasn't seen. You know, it did happen with every doctor, but with, with a lot of physicians, it happened. And 
Uh, at the time, I didn't understand it, but now you know it's crystal clear is that the healing aspect was completely neglected, or I had two minutes or five minutes under five minutes. So many things were moved, and I just felt like I was being pushed and shoved through like a uh, through a factory. What is it? You know, the the assembly line. And uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was like, well, we checked you, and uh, we can't find what's wrong. Or, but even if you get better, you're not not healed. So I think that's uh, that's a crucial understanding to have as a culture. And um, maybe just to touch on one thing, which is very important that you provide a lot of data in your book on, is the cost um, that we're seeing. You know, you you highlight very briefly some of the costs that is in trillions of uh, neglecting healing and the biofield and placebo. Right. Um, and uh, the cost is literally in hundreds of trillions, trillions of dollars, apart from the cost of uh, loss of life and disempowerment uh, and the mental health pandemic that we, we now have at our hands. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that you, you provide tons of data, that there is a, there's a huge cost to. This is the issue. The current methods aren't working, right? We're incomplete. There's there's so many nuances to that, of course, in the managed healthcare system. You know, I just had it came from a conference where I spoke, which was mainly physicians, sort of talking about the the issues of the managed healthcare system as we have it now, and um, the, the, it's very nuanced. But what we know is that applying what we've learned so far is not enough to address the gravity of the issue, right? Um, on a global level and on a financial level and on a quality of life level. This speaks to the need for all of us while there is work that is being done to try to remedy those situations. And we see that in the great resignation, honestly, of nurses and doctors that are now going into private practice saying, I've had enough. I'm not dealing with this managed care system anymore unless you guys change your act and change the way you do things. I'm out. I'm going to do it on my own. And we see more and more people doing that. There are people trying to devise different types of systems, more equitable systems, more community-based systems. So what do we do in the meantime while all of this movement is happening? We can leverage all of what we're learning from the data to, again, engage in our own health practices to help keep ourselves healthy, prevent disease, share this information with others. Many of the people that I come into contact with are healing practitioners who are so grateful to hear the information because... It empowers them to go to their clients and say, look, this is really real. Here's where the data is. So sharing this with others is very meaningful. And one of the areas that we're looking at with my nonprofit, the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, and the focus of the research that I will be forwarding over the next couple of years is really on that lever of community care. Because what we know is that these kinds of biofield healing practices and many holistic practices and contemplative practices where we're seeing these effects in the data all the way down to the physiological level, well, we can train people in this. You don't have to have an MD. You don't have to have a PhD or even necessarily a master's in social work to engage in training and learning some of these practices. So we're now really focused on how can we scale this work across communities that need it the most. So the randomized control trial that we hope to embark on next year that we're currently fundraising for, for example, and we're well on our way with the fundraising, still fundraising a little bit for it, is a study where we're going to be providing a distant sound healing-based approach for anxiety in underprivileged and underserved populations because we see that there's the greatest disparity in mental health, um, you know, addressing mental health issues in those communities. There's not many avenues. A lot of them don't even have Medicare. You know, and if they did, they may just be given a drug, which they may or may not want to take, right? So there are other options out there. How can we potentially first explore whether these practices are helpful for them? And then if they are, train them on how to do it, you know, so that they can work with their own communities and really scale out the work beyond just having to go to the doctor when I'm not feeling well. Yes, there are times that we absolutely need to go to the doctor when we're not feeling well, but some of us don't even have access to those doctors. So what are we going to do? We have to work on the community level as well as, you know, the healthcare level. Yes, I mean, I mean this, is, this is amazing that this is actually happening. And if, if uh, so th these are being uh, updated, these studies and these reports are being updated at the Consciousness and Healing Initiatives website? 
That's right. Yeah. So I invite everyone to join us. We have a really thriving, beautiful community at Chi or the Consciousness and Healing Initiative. The website for that is chi.is or chi.is and Kanan will probably put it in the show notes. We have free webinars, generally the first uh, first Friday of every month, a lot of free content, um, reports on sort of where we are as a field in the biofield science and healing area, um, and just really wonderful goodies. We have an incredible online course that we're getting incredibly fabulous feedback on, and which includes 35 guest faculty, which is just amazing, you know, including many bright lights who many of you folks know, like... Um, Deepak Chopra and Bruce Lipton, Greg Braden, energy healing, you know, pioneers and teachers, Donna Eden, Cindy Dale, um, you know, Nobel Peace Prize um, nominee twice, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, system scientist. I mean, there are just so many incredible guest faculty that are part of this. And it's really kind of aligned with the book, Kenan, because it really brings out, it makes the book sort of come alive with what we're learning. So we're exploring consciousness and the biofield and the subtle bodies, we're exploring the evidence behind placebo, mind-body-spirit practices, biofield and energy healing, and and where the future of this work is going. So it's it's been such a joy to do this course with everyone. And I'm really grateful for the feedback we're getting. It's it's fabulous. And if people are interested in that, they can go to scienceofhealingcourse.com and learn more about it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll I'll also put Put these in the show notes and uh, definitely i'm going to go and go and check it out and uh once again i think that your book is a tour de force with um with all of the stuff that you've put together well thank you so much for for being here it was such a joy to to talk to you it it was wonderful being with you and you know i look forward to continued collaboration in the space thank you for all that you're doing and thank you to all the listeners mm-hmm.